All right. This room is filling up. Like, there's a lot of people in here tonight. Um, we got a lot of new faces, new people. It's exciting. It's awesome. So, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, I come to you and I just thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross. Lord, we just pray um, that your spirit would reveal your son to us tonight, Lord. Um, my stammering tongue cannot say anything that would really communicate how great he is, nor how sinful we are, Lord. And so I pray that your spirit would teach us that your spirit would reveal what you want us to see tonight. And we just pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Did everybody get a study guide? Okay, Emily complained last week that there was not a study. She didn't complain, but she mentioned there was not a study guide. Um, and I said I was not a professional pastor like Josh was, but tonight I am. So, now you can get a study guide if you want one. It's not great, but may help you. <clears throat> so, Ecclesiastes 7.2 says this, It is better to enter a house of mourning than a house of feasting, since death is the end of every man and the living should take this to heart. So this, this verse is basically communicating that it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Why would he say that? Why would he say something like that? Any, anybody would rather go to a party than a funeral, right? He says, since death is the end of every man and the living should take this to heart. It's saying at a funeral, you will contemplate life, death, your mortality, and more importantly, eternity and your eternal destiny. Um, I know at youth group, it can feel like a party sometimes, and that's okay. That's good. I mean, we, 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 we eat pizza, we drink soft drinks, we're with our friends, we have a good time, uh, we play basketball, we play soccer. We sing some fun songs out there, and then we come in here. But I'm asking you now to take this to heart. Because every person in this room one day will die. And you will stand before the Lord in judgment. And there will be those who have believed in Jesus, not just a set of facts about Jesus, but they have trusted in Christ like one would trust a parachute after having jumped from a plane. That they've abandoned all hope of saving themselves by their own righteousness, and they have cast themselves on Christ. For those, there will be everlasting joy and peace with Christ in heaven. But Jesus said many on that day, many, 
will say to me, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did all of these things in your name. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I think this day and time we could say, Lord, Lord, I went to youth group. I went on a mission trip. I read my Bible. Those are good activities that a Christian should do, but they are not works that will save you. There is only one work that will save you, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. So I plead with you up front. Most of the time we do this kind of thing at the end. I'm doing it up front. Hear this and consider what we're saying tonight. So review last week for those of you that were here. And we got new people, so it's kind of unfair to them. What was the question we asked last week? Does anybody remember? How can a just God allow sinners into heaven and remain just? How can a just God forgive sin? And what was the an- Good job, Aiden. He's got all the answers. You're right. I mean, he's... I'm, at some point, like Josh, I'm going to have to say, okay, somebody other than Aiden answer. So what was the answer to that question? Anybody remember? It can be a Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. Do you, does anybody remember the word that we use to talk about what Jesus did? Started with a P. Propitiation. Propitiation. That was loud. <laughs> Did you text it to him? Propitiation. That's right. It's on the sheet. The cheat, as we'll call it, the cheat sheet now. All right. And what was propitiation? So you're going to read it now. A wrath, and that's fine. This is review. A wrath... Absorbing or satisfying substitute. We see this. We see types of this all through the Old Testament. We see it, of course, in the sacrificial system, but we see it in other ways too. How about the flood? Noah is proclaiming a flood is coming. It's never, I don't think to that point, it's probably never even rained. And he's saying a flood is coming. God's wrath is coming. Just like now, we would proclaim the wrath of God is coming. Judgment is coming. And the people scorned him, laughed at him. How was Noah and his family delivered from that flood? From the ark. And the ark is a type of Christ. That is, that flood crashed down on the earth. Those inside the ark were saved. If you're in Christ you will be saved. We see it um, in the cities of refuge in the law. Um, there were these cities 
in Israel where if you had murdered someone accidentally or killed someone accidentally and someone came to you for revenge to kill you out of wrath and vengeance, you could flee to a city. And there they would keep you safe from that wrath until a trial could be held. And that city of refuge is a type of Christ. Christ is our city of refuge, saving us from that wrath that would be coming for us. Let's turn to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. If somebody could read that for us. Who's going to read that for me? Anybody? Logan read like two last week. Somebody other than Aiden and somebody other than Logan. Somebody else. All right, Josiah. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Real quick, I wasn't going to cover this, but since he read it, I think that was verse 15, that putting the rulers and authorities to open shame, that, that's kind of a, a drawback to the Romans passage in 3 where it says he, he publicly displayed Christ. He put him forward. He publicly displayed him as a propitiation. And that was to put them to open shame. Here is my answer. I'm just because I've laid on the, the iniquity of all my people on Christ. And so then going back, he says that the, the record of transgression, the record of debt, it says, that, st- that stood against us, he has canceled, he's taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So this verse speaks of our sin and what we deserve because of our sin as debt. Our debt being a how big of a debt? What's the word? Starts with an I? Infinite. infinite. An infinite debt because we have sinned against an infinite God. So this talks about it being canceled out at zero. This still leaves us with a problem, though. Let's turn to Matthew 5.20. And so if somebody could get Matthew 5.20, and if somebody could get Psalm 24, 3 through 4. Who's got Matthew 5.20? Uh, Ethan and uh, Jonathan, you get Psalm 24. Go ahead. Go ahead. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's not just a zero balance, right? We're, we're canceled. What Christ did is he canceled out the debt that stood against us. This is talking about something more than that. It's talking about a righteousness that has to be in your account, the riches of righteousness in your account, not just a zero. 
Jonathan, if you could read Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So again, this is not just zero. This is clean hands. What, what do you, you do things with your hands, don't you? Have your actions been righteous? Have they been upright? Have they been in accordance with God's laws? How about a clean heart? Do you have a clean heart? This is, this is talking about our, our motivations. Somebody read Isaiah 64, 6. And that's basically the verse there. And that's on your study guide there. Who's got that for me? Isaiah 64, 6. Do it. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. And you say, but, but I, I do some good, right? I mean, even believers do some good things. What, what is the definition of good? I mean, for, for something to be good... It would be in keeping with the greatest commandment, would it not? What is the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How many times a day would you say you do that? How many times a week? Aiden, you think you've done that some? Oh, <laughs> none. Okay, good. I thought you were raising your hand, proclaiming your own righteousness. <laughs> um, yeah, let's just cut to the chase. No one ever has done that. In light of this, then verses like what it says in Romans, there's none good, no, not one, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags, it makes sense. The truth is no mortal man has ever, even for one second, loved God as he deserved to be loved or treasured him as he deserves to be treasured. No one has ever glorified God in their heart the way that he deserves to be glorified. No one except for the man Christ Jesus. See, we, not for one moment have any of us ever loved God like he deserved to be loved. Jesus loved God, every, his father, every moment of every day. Do you see that chasm? 
between us and him, he's not just a little better. It's completely opposite. He had a perfect righteousness. He completely fulfilled the law of God. So we, we've got work to do. If we're going to get to heaven, we got to do better, right? I mean, we got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We got to, you know, I mean, you can't miss church. You got to be at church every week. Um, we're talking about some serious righteousness. Is what I just said true? And, and thank God it's not, because every one of us would go where? Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Who can read that for me? Who's got that for me? <laughs> Aiden started. Okay, go ahead. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. One of my favorite verses. I think my, the version I have in my head is probably the New King James. I don't know. It says the same thing, a couple different words. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So let's break this down. Who is the he talking about at the start? He. He made him who knew no sin. Who is the he at the start? God the Father. He, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin for us. That record of debt, our sins, was looked on as if Christ had done them. He bore the consequences of them. He bore the guilt of them. He bore the shame of them. He bore our sin so that we, who is the we? Everyone who is born again, repents, and believes might become, and this is God looks upon, considers, gives you the reward of the righteousness of God in Him. Christ took our sin and the consequences for that sin. We get Christ's righteousness and the reward of that righteousness. See, we not only needed someone to die a substitutionary death for us, we need someone to live a substitutionary life of righteousness that we cannot live. We call this truth, and this is on your study guide, imputed righteousness. 
As it says in the old hymn, the solid rock, that we are dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We see this after Adam and Eve first sinned. We don't have time to go there, but I'll put it for you really quick. Um, After they sinned, they realized that they were naked. And it said that they sewed together fig leaves to try to cover themselves. They, They knew that they were sinful, that they were guilty and shameful, and they tried to cover that with their own covering, which would be like their own self-righteousness. God comes and finds them, and he says, that's not good enough. And there's an animal that has to die. And he takes the skin of that animal and covers them in that skin, already proclaiming the gospel to them, showing how Christ would, ha- would die. A substitute, they didn't die, the animal died. And they gained the covering of the animal the righteousness of Christ. We see this. um, Pastor Tim Sunday was talking about uh, the prodigal son. And what did he put around the prodigal son as he repented and came back to the father? A robe. That represents the righteousness of Christ. And lastly, we see it in the parable of the wedding feast. Somebody could look up Matthew 22... 11 through 14. Who's got that for me? Go for it. So we're kind of jumping in the middle of the story here, but the point I want you to see is the garment here represents the righteousness of Christ. And this party basically represents heaven. And this man has tried to get into the wedding feast or heaven with his own garment, his own righteousness, where the garment was provided for him, which was Christ's righteousness, just like it is provided for us, and he tried to get in on his own, and there's the warning, a stark warning there. He throws them out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is he talking about there? He's talking about hell. Have you trusted Christ in this way, or do you still, still think you will be saved in the end because of something you've done? So, propitiation, and imputed righteousness. These are the two things we've, we've talked about so far. Both of these things, if you stop and think about it, are really things that, they, they were things that actually happened and took place, but they're not really inside of us. These are things, I mean, that was settled between God. You know, this is all how Christ took our punishment and... Um, you know, how God looked at Christ and poured out his wrath on him. 
and imputed righteousness. All this is outside of us. This next thing we're going to look at is something that happens inside of us, something that God does to bring us to salvation. If somebody could look up Romans 6, 20 through 22. Who's going to get that for me? Who is? Um, did somebody else raise their hand? I'll get let Logan get this one. Read it loud and proud. So that said that we were slaves of sin right at the start, didn't it? That we were slaves of sin. Um, how did we become slaves of sin? When did we become slaves of sin? When? Did somebody say it? Birth? Yeah, well, you could actually go back a little further than that and say conception. Um, that's what David said in the psalm. He said, in sin, my mother conceived me. So he was, had a sinful nature even at conception. Um, let's turn to, well... Yeah, let's turn to Genesis 2, chapter 16 and 17. And find out when mankind became a slave of sin. Who's going to read that for me? John, or I'll let Aiden get this one. He's been raising sand every time. We'll let him get another one. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. Okay, so he tells them, in the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. We know Adam and Eve both ate from that tree, didn't they? Did they die? Yes and no. I mean, you can make an argument and say even physically they started dying and eventually they did die. But God is not the kind of parent that tells a kid, don't do that or I'll spank you. And then they do it again and they say, you, I'm really mean at this time. You do it again I'm going to spank you. That's not how he is. They did die. It was a spiritual death. This is where mankind became slaves to sin. So what does it look like? What changed for them? Um, if you look at Adam and Eve... Um, God came looking for them, didn't he? And what did they do? 
They hid. They hid from God. Ever since the fall, ever since man has become a slave of sin, um, no one has ever sought for God. That's what Romans says. There's none who seek after God. And they immediately started sinning. Um, Adam blamed God and Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And from that point on, it's not just that man sins, it's that he is a sinful, he, ha- he is sinful, he has a sinful nature. The Bible says our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Before salvation, we are slaves of sin. So how, how can we be freed from this? Can we free ourselves? No. How is a slave freed? If we were slaves of sin, did sin just decide it didn't want us and just let us turn us loose? Freed us? No. Think about this. Paul was using language that his readers would have understood in the time. And 2,000 years ago, if you go back and look at um, slavery in that culture, there were two ways to be rid of a master. One was to be freed by that master. The other was to be bought by another master. Somebody could read 1 Corinthians 6.20 for me. Did you read the last one? Yes. You read the last one. Uh, Emily. You were bought, what, bought? A person was bought. This is slave language. The only people that were bought were slaves. We were slaves of sin, and then it says we were bought. At what price? It says bought at a price. What was the price? Jesus, his blood, bought by the blood of Christ. You see the picture here? We're a slave of sin. And Jesus walks in that slave market of sin and buys you with the price of his own blood. What part do you play in that transaction? Zero. You, you do nothing. Um, a, a slave had no power or ability to do anything about his condition about freeing himself. So what happens inside of us? And this is that part, you know, imputed righteousness, um, uh, propitiation, that's all taken place um, between God the Father and God the Son outside of us. What happens inside of us when God takes a heart, a nature that is a slave of sin and, and makes it a slave of Christ and sets it could somebody read Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27? And while you're looking that up, um, this is very closely related that um, being a slave of Christ or being a slave to sin is very closely related in the word to being dead in your trespasses and sins. They're, they're very parallel ideas. But tonight we're going to focus more on how we were slaves of sin. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. He's got it. Um, Kaylee. I was sinful, sin was, and I was born in iniquity. 
So he takes out that heart of stone. It says, I will take out your heart of stone, your heart that is a slave to sin, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. That heart of stone that was hardened against him, that was wicked and a slave to sin, and replaces it with a heart of flesh. A heart that sees Jesus as who he is, who sees ourselves as who we are, that no longer runs from God like Adam and Eve did, but runs to the cross in repentance and faith for salvation. This is something that the blood of Christ purchased for his people, our new nature, from being a slave of sin to a slave of Christ. Do you ever wonder why it is, for those of you that are saved, why it is that there was a time when you weren't really interested in the gospel, you weren't really interested in Jesus, you didn't really care that you were a sinner, you didn't think about those things. And then you began to care about them. And not just care about them, but they moved you to the point where you feared the Lord. You feared the wrath to come, and they became so real to you like they were right in front of you. Your spiritual eyes became opened and you could see them for what they are. And you cried out to the Lord for salvation. Let's look at um, why it is we have a, a changed mind, why we think differently about those things. Did somebody read Ephesians four seventeen through 18? You just got that for me. Aiden, you want to get it? Get it. Okay. He talks about these are unsaved people. He says they're futile in their mind. They're, what was it, vain in their mind? I think you had a different vanity of their mind. Vain, futile, darkened understanding. Their mind follows their nature, and their nature is still a slave of sin. And why is it, at the very end, it says this is due to, this is because of the hardness of their heart. Oh, do you mean like that heart of stone that Ezekiel was referring to? I'm pretty sure Apostle Paul knew well Ezekiel's prophecy. And I believe that's exactly what he was referring to. That heart of stone So what I'm saying is this. If you are saved, it is because at one point the Lord Jesus Christ walked into the slave market of sin and he bought you with his own blood and he cast off your chains of darkness and he clasps you with chains of grace, a grace that cannot be resisted because he is stronger than all the forces of darkness put together and he drug you from that dungeon 
And for the first time, you looked at yourself and you said, I'm in filthy rags. And you looked at Christ and he was glorious, mighty to save. And you said, save me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you see that? Jesus actually accomplished your salvation. Jesus didn't just make salvation possible. He actually accomplished the atonement for His people on the cross. It's not a potential atonement. It's an actual atonement. He did it start to finish. It's his work. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is one reason that, yes, Jesus was a man, and he had to be a man because man had sinned. Man must die. But he had to be God because God alone will claim the title of Savior, and he will share it with no other. Josh talked about that, you know, in the, the last few weeks. He's God. He's man. He had to be both. So, <clears throat> what are, what does all this accomplish then? It, atonement, redemption. What, what are some of the, the things that this does? If we can look up Colossians real quick, we're going to go through a list. Not exhaustive at all. This is just a few things. That, um, that it has accomplished for us. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Go ahead, or Amelia. It says we are reconciled to God, and that is on your study guide if you're interested. Reconciled to God. So we, we were enemies. We were under his wrath. We were sinners. We were slaves to sin. But because of everything he has done, we have been reconciled back to God. We have fellowship with him. We have relationship with him. Uh, Romans... Five one. He's got that for me. Um, let Josiah. Casey, you get the next one. Romans five one. We have peace with God. Now, I want to I share something with you. This, um, there is a peace of God that the Bible talks about, like the verse that says, you know, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And, and that is just a, a calm, a peace that you have that you know God is in control. When we're talking about the gospel... That is not the kind of peace it's talking about. These are war terms. See, once it says in Romans 5.10, we were enemies of God. 
But because of what Christ has done, we're no longer enemies. We are reconciled to be at peace with him. Romans 5.2. Go ahead, uh, Casey. We have access to God. Yes, this is an amazing thing. And if you were a Jew and you heard we have access to God, knowing how the tabernacle and the temple was set up, that there was all the different courts and then the the holy place and then a huge 60-foot veil that was like four foot thick. I mean, it was ridiculously thick that separated even the holy place from the holy of holies. And only the high priest, as we talked about last week, only the high priest went in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, which on the Jewish calendar starts at sundown today, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. For thousands of years, the the priest would enter into that Holy of Holies. And it says that Christ has gone as a forerunner for us. At his death, what happened to that veil? Literally, that veil... In the temple, what happened to it? Does anybody know? It was torn in half from top to bottom. In other words, God says, I did this. And it's not at all. He is still holy, holy, holy. But we have access to him. It says in Hebrews that we, because we have such a great high priest as Jesus, that we can even come boldly before the throne of grace. To close, let's turn to Psalm, let's all turn to Psalm 24. I want to end here. Josh, um, I was already planning on closing here, and uh, Josh, when I came in uh, about five weeks ago, and he was starting his series on um, basically who is Jesus, who is this King of Glory, and I saw it, and I was like, well, he's using this as a launch pad. I've got to use it to close with. Um, so let's all turn to Psalm 24. This has become one of my my favorite psalms a couple things real quick it is a blessed thing and has been so um, I've enjoyed so much in the past few years as I read through the psalms and see Christ he's everywhere he's right at the beginning Psalm 1 blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And whatever he does will prosper. Who is that talking about? Are you that man? That's Jesus. That's Christ. I'm not that man. You are not that man. That is Jesus. All through, as you read through the psalm, I encourage you, see Christ. He's everywhere. Jesus said himself, you read that to the Pharisees who had the Psalms, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, yet it's the scriptures that testify of me. So look for him. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? 
he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. That is not me, and that is not you. That is the man, Christ Jesus. And then we have, starting in verse 7, and, um, and I'll tell you, I, my, my understanding of this verse comes from, from, um, from other men. I love what, uh, what I've heard Paul Washer say of this verse, and he would say he got it from theologians older than him, so I'll pass it on to you guys. But verse 7 here, if you think of Jesus, the King of glory that existed in eternity past in perfect fellowship and union with the the Father and the Holy Spirit, eternally loving and giving of honor with each other. And that's what the Bible really means when it talks about God is love. It's that inner uh, Trinitarian love between each other that he would step out from that that he would come and be born in the weakness of human flesh. That he would die on a cross. That he would rise again. And after his resurrection and he appeared to many, what did he do? He ascended. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus has ascended. And I think the, the language here is communicating Jesus in his triumph returning to heaven. It says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory shall come in. And here you have Jesus as God, yes, but as a man. And the host of heaven saying, who is this King of glory? What man would dare lay their hand to those ancient doors. And he answers back, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Is he mighty in battle? Josh talked about this. Yes, sin, death, the greatest enemies defeated. The the forces of darkness, as we read earlier, put to open shame. And he repeats his his command, lift up your head, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And they say again, who is this king of glory? And he says, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And for the first time in the history of the world, a man, by his own merits, his own righteousness, by the power of an incorruptible life, walks through the gates of heaven. And he walks up to the majesty on high and he sits down at his right hand, signifying that the the atonement, his work was complete. It was finished. There is no other work to be done. The Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The wrath of God is coming. Just like in the days of Noah, the wrath of God is coming. Are you in the ark? Are you in 
Christ. The wrath is coming. Flee to that city of refuge that is Christ. And if you flee to that city of refuge, you will find him to be a fortress of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. Lord, I would that by your spirit, we could see just a glimpse of what Isaiah saw. As he saw the king of glory high and lifted up. And that the seraphim around him saying, holy, holy, holy. That we would see ourselves as undone, as lost as he did. And that we would cling to you. We thank you so much. We don't understand it. It's such a mystery to us. We don't understand why. For wretches like us, you would do that, Lord. But we're so thankful. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.